In the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, beginning again with verse 14, <laughs> reading through verse 29. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And when they brought the boy to him, and they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why is it that we could not cast it out? He said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting. I wonder if you've ever known someone, known them so well that you could predict how they would react in any situation. I think after a while, husbands and wives get to know each other that, that well. Have you ever known somebody who had uh, such a mild and sweet and patient disposition, even-tempered, cool and calm and collected, and that whatever happened, whatever the situation or the circumstance, they would always react with coolness and calmness, gentleness and meekness and self-control. Have you ever known anybody like that? They're disgusting, aren't they? <laughs> People that have such great control. But I, uh, I've known people like that. And then have you ever seen something happen and suddenly that person react totally out of character? Their response, their reaction to it, instead of being meek and calm, is suddenly abrasive and an outburst of anger. 
When you see someone suddenly acting and reacting out of character, it sort of makes you uh, sit up and take notice. You begin to take very seriously whatever it is that's happened. It must have been something very, very serious to make this person act in such an uncharacteristic way. That's sort of the way I feel when I read how Jesus reacted to this situation. And both gospel writers record his reaction, and so it must have made an impression on them. If I were to ask you tonight to draw up a profile of the Lord Jesus to describe him and his character, I have no doubt that all of us somewhere within our description would use words like gentle and meek and long-suffering and patient and self-control. There was never a man that walked the face of the earth that exercised such meekness and gentleness and patience such as did our Lord. That is one of his outstanding characteristics. There have been so many times as I've read the Gospels that uh, it's amazing to me. It has to be miraculous to see the way that he maintains such an even temper and continues to love them and deal with them patiently. But there was an occasion when all of that seemed to dissipate into nothingness and Jesus reacted in an entirely different manner. As the Lord with three of his disciples returns from the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees that there's a commotion going on around his disciples, he comes to them and says, what's going on? What's happening? And of course they don't answer. But somebody does. There's always somebody around who will confess your sins for you if you don't want to. And, and so uh, somebody runs up and says, I'll tell you exactly what's the matter. I have a son who's possessed with an evil spirit, and I brought him to your disciples and told them to cast him out, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus turned on him, and most Bible scholars agree that while Jesus is generally speaking to everybody, yet his words are primarily directed towards his immediate disciples. He turns on them and says, Oh, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long will I put up with you? How long am I going to have to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Suddenly there is an explosion of righteous anger. Suddenly there is pouring forth from the mouth of this meek and lowly and patient Jesus words that scathe and sear. It's as though the Lord's patience has finally broken, that dam of patience has exploded, and all of the pent-up exasperation and irritation and disappointment pours forth, and Jesus comes down hard with angry words on his disciples. They express you just get the idea he's had it with these men. He's fed up with them. He says, oh, you bunch of unbelievers, you perverted bunch. How long am I going to have to put up with you? How long am I going to have to put up with this? Now, that's one of the things that amazes me is the fact that Jesus would react that way. But the other thing that really arouses my attention is the direction in which that anger was pointed. He is primarily angry with his disciples. Those words are directed towards his disciples. You know, I think if I'd been one of his disciples that day and suddenly that torrent of words began pounding upon my ears, I'd have said, well, wait, wait just a minute, Lord. Uh, excuse me, but it looks to me like if you're going to be mad at anybody, you ought to be mad at the devil. I mean, after all, it's the demon who's caused all this problem. 
It's the demon who has entered this boy. It's the demon that has driven this boy to throw himself into the fire and into the water. It's the demon that's broken the hearts of these parents all these years. I mean, Lord, why are you mad at us? We haven't done anything. I mean, at least we tried to help him. Sure, we failed, but I mean, at least you ought to give us an A for effort. And, and after all, you're, you're here now and you've solved everything. Everything's in hand. And it seems to me if you're going to be upset with anybody, you ought to be upset at the devil. He's the one that's caused all this problem. Why are you mad at us? Did, does that, did you ever wonder about that? Jesus doesn't have a thing to say to the demon right now. Jesus doesn't come down heavy on the devil and blame him for it. His words are, of rebuke are directed not at the devil, but at his disciples. You know, that tells me something. Uh, this is just my opinion, which I greatly respect, but <clears throat> I want to tell you, folks, I don't believe tonight that God's big problem is the devil. He knows what to do with the devil. I think God's problem is with us, with his disciples. You remember what he said through Hosea the prophet, Oh, Israel, what shall I do with you? Oh, Ephraim, what am I going to do with you? In those human words of perplexity, God's displeasure is directed towards his people. God knows what to do with the devil. His problem is, what am I going to do with you? I can't abandon you because I have bound myself to you with my word, and I can't fellowship with you because your sins have separated from us. What am I going to do with you, you see? The problem with God is not with the devil, but it is with his disciples, and it tells me something else. The tragedy of this story is not to be found in that demon-possessed boy. The tragedy is to be found in those powerless disciples. I, I think tonight that what we need to understand is that the tragedy of our present day country is not the fact that sin is increasing and, and evil is waxing more and more and that the crime rate is accelerating and pornography and all of that is growing at leaps and bounds. That's not the tragedy. The tragedy is that the church of Jesus Christ is powerless to do anything about it. It's not tragic when it gets dark. I don't get mad at the darkness. I expect it to get dark about every night about this time. That's not the tragedy. But I tell you this much, if my lights won't turn on, that's when I begin to get upset. You're not mad at the darkness. You're mad when your light bulb burns out. We spend most of our time scathing the world and all of the ungodliness that's in it. But folks, it's only acting natural. I remember one time I was about seven years old. I was acting up, and my mother said, you act just like a seven-year-old kid. Well, that's what I am, I said. I didn't understand that. I said, I am a seven-year-old kid. I, I'm just acting according to nature. We get angry and do all of our preaching against the world because of its ungodliness and its sinfulness, but I want to tell you some folks, they're just acting natural. The tragedy is not the increasing of sin and the acceleration of evil in our land. The tragedy is that we are powerless to do anything about it. And that's the reason that Jesus came down so hard on his disciples in this particular incident. And I want to talk to you tonight a little bit about this. Why, why is our failure such a tragedy? You see, one of the danger signs in your life and mine is when I begin to accept my failure to live up 
to what I'm supposed to be, when I begin to accept that as commonplace, when it no longer disturbs me, I'm afraid that many of us have come to terms with failure and we've made peace with defeat. And we realize that we are not measuring up to the things that the Bible says we ought to be. And it doesn't seem to disturb us. We've come to accept that as normal. Well, nobody expects us to be perfect. I have news for you. God does. Jesus said you're to be as perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I think we've excused ourselves too long by saying, well, you know, nobody's perfect and everybody sins. Well, the Bible has what I like to call some impossible possibilities set before us. And the standard is this, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And the Greek of that verse means you don't commit a single act of sin. And you and I have no right to be satisfied with our spiritual progress as long as we're committing a single act of sin. Well, what is this tragedy of failure? Let me just mention two or three things. First of all, our failure, and I think the reason that the Lord uh, reacted in such a, an angry way to the failure of his disciples is this, our failure causes the enemies of the Lord to rejoice. You'll notice it says that when Jesus came back, he noticed that his disciples were arguing with the scribes. And in verse 16, he said, what are you discussing with them? And it's really a strong word. It has the idea of a heated dispute. You see, one of the first things Jesus noticed as he returned to the scene were that these scribes, these Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious professionals of his day, had these disciples cornered and were over there really laying it on to them. They were having a heated argument. And so he asked his disciples, what, what are you all arguing about? And they didn't answer him because they didn't want him to know. They were embarrassed about what they were arguing about. You know what I think they were arguing about? I think the context makes it very clear. These scribes, these religious leaders, all the Pharisees and Sadducees, they refused to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They had already rejected him. And they were always looking for reasons to justify their unbelief. And I have an idea they were saying something like this to those disciples. Uh-huh. You claim that Jesus is the Son of God? Huh. Well, if he were, you would have been able to cast the demon out of that boy. If he really were who you claim him to be, all you would have to have said was, in the name of Jesus, come out, and he would have come out. What they were saying is this, your failure proves that Jesus is not who he claims to be. So they were always looking for a justification for their unbelief. And you realize, of course, don't you, that the world is always looking for that justification today? The world still rejects Jesus Christ. And any time they can find some justification for that unbelief, they're happy about it. That's why our failure makes them happy. Have you ever noticed how, how the world enjoys reporting on the failure of Christians? Remember when I was in seminary, Fort Worth, Texas, one day uh, there came out on the front page now, the front page of the Fort Worth paper, in the headlines about a Baptist preacher that I'd never heard of pastoring some little Baptist church in some little town in Alabama. I forget the name of it, but I'd never heard of the town. It was some little old rural community, some little Baptist church. And the story was that this Baptist preacher had run off with one of the deacon's wives. 
Now that's, uh, that's a no-no if you don't realize that, and that was bad, but uh, you know what I couldn't understand is why in the world would that make front page news in Fort Worth, Texas? I mean, it wasn't Billy Graham or W.A. Criswell or somebody like that that was well-known. Some little Baptist preacher nobody had ever heard of and some little church no one had ever heard of and some little town in Alabama that most of the people in Texas had never heard of, and they're on the front page, the story. Why do you suppose they put that on the front page? Well, the greatest seminary in the world, or excuse me, the biggest seminary in the world, largest seminary in the world, Baptist, is in Fort Worth, Texas. Folks, there are more Baptists in Fort Worth than there is dirt. You can't turn around without bumping into half a dozen. That's why any time they can even find anything, they've never been able to find anything really, but every time there might be some little shadow they can cast on somebody like Billy Graham, that's why it always makes the newspaper. Why? Well, if we can discredit the man, we can discredit his message. You see, unbelievers are constantly watching Christians looking for chinks in the armor, looking for inconsistencies. Why? Well, if you claim to be a Christian and your life is inconsistent and filled with failure, that sort of justifies my unbelief why Jesus Christ were really the Son of God, uh, really the Savior of the world, really who you say He is, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. The Bible says that Jesus was persecuted, and that word persecute doesn't necessarily mean physical pain. It literally, literally the word means to pursue. It has the idea of hounding somebody, of, of uh, following them all the time, keeping a watchful eye on them. You remember that story one day uh, when Jesus on a Sabbath was taking a little walk with his disciples, and they took a shortcut through a cornfield? And as they were passing through the cornfield, one of the disciples got hungry and he plucked off an ear of corn and suddenly the Pharisees began to point at him and accuse Jesus because of what this fellow had done. You remember that? Well, have you ever asked yourself this question? What in the world were a bunch of Pharisees doing in a corn patch on the Sabbath? Did it ever occur to you to ask what they were doing there? I mean, here's the Lord and his friends minding their own business, just taking a nice little Sabbath afternoon's walk through a corn patch, and finally some one of them plucks off an ear of corn, and up between the stalks pops these Pharisees, and I saw that, I saw that, saw what you were doing. What were they doing? They were persecuting Jesus. They were pursuing him. They were watching him so they might find something to accuse him by. The world's always looking for a justification for their unbelief. And sad to say, friends, every time you and I fail to live up to what everybody knows a Christian is supposed to do and our lives are marked by failure, we are simply giving the world a justification for their unbelief in Jesus Christ. But there's another reason. Our failure causes men to doubt the power of Jesus to save. Now, here's something interesting. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus comes and he talks to this father and he says, How long has this been happening to him? And the father answers, From childhood. And in verse 22 he says, And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, do you see that? But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, What do you mean if I can? That's not the question. 
All things are possible to him who believes. The question is not, can I do it? The question is, can you believe? And that father said, Lord, I believe. Sort of. Help me in my unbelief. Now, when that father brought his son to the disciples, there was absolutely no doubt they could do it. He didn't ask them, can you cure my boy? He said, I told your disciples to cast him out. Why, they had, he had heard reports of these disciples casting out demons. It was well-known fact they could do it. He had no doubt there wasn't, a, there wasn't an ounce of uncertainty. He came with full confidence these men could do it. But he watched them as they all failed, one by one, failed, failed miserably. Now when Jesus Christ himself comes on the scene, the Father says, but if you can do anything, do you see it? Suddenly there has been introduced into his heart doubt and uncertainty. And Jesus said, what do you mean if I can do anything? I can do it. Can you believe? And he said, oh, Lord, I do believe, but I can't, I can't help but remember watching those disciples fail. And I've got to be honest, Lord, there's some unbelief in my heart. You know, I've often wondered why in the world we have to beg people to come to church and be saved. That's the most amazing thing to me. Here we are offering a message to men free of charge that if they'll come, all their sins will be taken away. They'll be given joy unspeakable and full of glory. They will receive peace that passes all understanding. The chains of sin will be broken. God himself will take up residence in their life. They'll not only have life abundant in this world, but life everlasting in the world to come. Now, I want to tell you something, folks, that's a good deal. You'd think that you'd have to bar the doors to keep men out. But that's not true, is it? Our churches are more than half empty most of the time. Why is that? I'm wondering if it's because they have seen so much inconsistency and failure in our lives, they doubt that Jesus really has the power to save. Why should I believe you when you tell me that Jesus Christ can make my life brand new when I haven't seen it in you? I'm convinced that's why so many of our children are rejecting the faith of their fathers. Why should my son believe that Jesus Christ can save him and make life worth living and give him joy and peace and give him power over sin if he's not seen it happen in my own life? It causes men to doubt the power of Jesus to save. But there's one other thing that I want to mention, and this is the main thing that I want to discuss with you tonight. Our failure ought to drive us to Jesus to find an answer. They came privately, and I don't blame them for coming to him privately. They must have been absolutely humiliated. Can you imagine? It's bad enough to fail when you're all by yourself. I mean, when you're out in front of everybody. And the whole crowd was watching them, and I guess they all had to go at it. Maybe they started in alphabetical order. Maybe Andrew went first, and he couldn't cast the demon out. Then maybe Bartholomew said, well, Andy, you've not been keeping up your quiet time. Let me, let me try it. It's obvious something wrong with you. And they all had to go at it, and every one of them failed. And the Bible says they came to Jesus privately, so humiliated. And they said, Lord, why could we not cast it out? That's a great question. They were saying, Lord, why can we not do what you promised us we can do? You promised us, Lord. You gave us the power to do it in Matthew 10. Lord, why are we unable to do what we used to could do? Lord, we've been able to do this before, but suddenly 
we've lost our power and our ability, Lord, why are we not able to cast it out? Now, I was reading a very well-known Bible teacher, a professor at a great seminary, not one of ours, but he was commenting on this passage, and I could not believe what he said. He said the reason the disciples could not cast the demon out of this boy is because that that ability or that gift was only a temporary gift, and they were not aware of it, and that's why they couldn't cast it out, because when Jesus gave it to him, it was only temporary and it passed away. Funny, that's not what Jesus said. They said, Lord, why could we not cast it out? He didn't say, oh my goodness, I knew there was something I forgot to tell you fellas. Uh, that, uh, that ability I gave you to cast out demons just temporary, and it passed away 12 noon. <laughs> didn't say that, nor did he say, well, fellas, you know demons are tougher today than they've ever been before. I can remember when just a snap of the fingers had a demon running for cover. But you know, demons are, are, are meaner and tougher today than they've ever... That's not what he said. They said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. Now, in Mark, it says this kind goes not out except by prayer and fasting. And that's no contradiction because prayer is simply an expression of your faith. He said, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you'd cast, move the mountains because of your unbelief. Now, I must confess to you that that bothers me a little bit. I mean, I don't quite understand that because, you see, I think the disciples did believe. And I know that puts me in a bad position because Jesus said that you're unbelief. But I... I just can't understand how they didn't believe. See, in my opinion, they did believe. I think they did believe they could cast the demon out. I think they believed they could because they'd done it before. I think if they hadn't believed it, they wouldn't have tried it. They did try it, and they were surprised when they failed. You see, if they did not believe they could, they could cast that demon out, I don't think they'd have tried it, and they wouldn't have been surprised when they failed. So I think they did believe. Of course, Jesus says they didn't. But I think we're talking about two different kinds of belief, two different qualities, aspects, dimensions of it. You see, the disciples believed that they could do that. But when Jesus said it's because of your unbelief, he was referring to something else. What is faith anyway? Faith, folks, is not primarily a conviction about a fact or a truth. Faith is primarily a commitment to a person. Basically, in the New Testament, faith isn't believing facts about Jesus. It is committing yourself to Jesus, you see. It is identifying yourself with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. Men, the reason you could not cast the demon out, the reason you have forfeited your power and you've lost your ability to live as my disciples is because something has happened to your commitment to me. You see, it was only five days before when they could cast out demons. Now, all of a sudden, something has happened, and they're no longer able to cast out these demons. I want to know why. What happened to them? What was it that occurred that suddenly robbed these men of their spiritual privileges? Well, I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 16 for just a moment. 
And this is right before that event in chapter 17, of course. 16 always comes before 17, but it's significant what happened right before that Mount of Transfiguration experience. There at Caesarea Philippi, Peter has just made the great confession. Now look in verse 20. Matthew 16, verse 20. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Have you ever, ran across, have you ever run across a phrase like that in the New Testament and wondered about it? I thought that's why the Lord came, was so everybody would know. Jesus said, I don't want you telling anybody that I'm the Christ. Now look at verse 21. From that time, those words are highly significant. From that time, that indicates a new level of teaching. Jesus now is entering into a new aspect of his relationship with them. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, this is the first time that Jesus has ever mentioned the cross to these disciples. Up until now, in all their time together, Jesus has never mentioned to them that he's going to Jerusalem to die. This is news to these fellows. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And then look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, for years, we preachers have used that as a text for salvation or a text for discipleship, but it is neither one, actually. These men were already saved in the sense that they had already committed themselves to Christ. They were already disciples. They had already left their families. They had already left their fishing nets. They were already disciples. No, verse 24, that famous verse, is not an initial call to salvation. It is not an initial call to discipleship. You know what it is? It's a reenlistment call. For the first time, Jesus now reveals the purpose of his mission. These men thought that they were going to overthrow the Roman yoke of bondage and set up a literal kingdom, and they were going to sit on his right hand and his left hand. And Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise again the third day. That's, that's, that's on the agenda. That's the program. And Peter said, wait just a minute, Lord. That's not, that, that's not the way we want to do it. And Jesus said, get behind me, the devil, Satan. You don't understand the things of God. You're thinking like a man. And then he turns to those disciples, and in effect what he's saying, if any one of you wants to keep on following me, here's what it means. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus is saying, fellows, it's time for re-enlistment. It's time for us to have an inventory and recheck ourselves. You started following me some time ago, but you didn't understand the full meaning of it. Now you do. And I want to tell you, if you're going to follow me, it's going to mean self-denial and a cross. Now go back to Mark chapter 9. And we'll pick it up in verse 30. And from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he was unwilling for anyone to know about it. 
5. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise again three days later. Now look at verse 32. But they did not understand this statement. Now, friend, tell me, what is so hard to understand about that statement? Jesus using very plain words. And then the next statement says, And they were afraid to ask him. That's the first time they've ever been afraid to ask the Lord anything. Do you know the reason they were afraid to ask him? They already knew the answer. Oh, some time ago, I don't want to disillusion you in thinking that my wife and I ever have little, you know, hits, but we do once in a while. But I... I had done something, and I knew, I, you know, and I could tell when I came in, she was very, you know, upset. And, uh, you know, I didn't ask her what was the matter. <laughs> I, I didn't want to know. You know why I didn't want to know? Because I already knew. I mean, friend, you don't say sick him to a bulldog when he's already got a hold of your leg. The Bible says the Stivals, they didn't understand that statement. Yes, they did. That was the problem. They did understand. They were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask him? They didn't want to hear the answer because they already knew the answer. Now listen, every time Jesus brings up the cross, the disciples try to change the subject. You watch it in the Gospels. Every time Jesus starts talking about the cross, the disciples try to change the subject. They don't want to hear about the cross at all. Well, we'll read on. Verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing in the way? But they kept silent. Have you ever been with a group of folks, maybe you went out to some amusement park or something like that, and you were with the group, and all of you were together, and then suddenly you realize that you're all alone, and the rest of the group has sort of dropped a few feet behind you, and they're all talking? sort of makes you suspicious, doesn't it? You wonder, you know... Well, Jesus, as they walked down the road to Capernaum, he noticed that all his disciples had sort of separated from him, and they were in a little group, and they were talking. I wonder what they were talking about. Well, I know exactly what they were discussing, don't you? Their Lord and Master, whom they loved, had just said that he's going to Jerusalem and have to die. And I know what they were talking about. They were discussing among themselves how can we best minister to our master? How can we comfort him and encourage him? How can we make these last few days the best days he's ever had? You know that's exactly what they were talking about, don't you? Sure. No, it says they kept silent. Why? For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Can you imagine that? They've just received word. They've just heard that their master, their Lord, in a, less than a week's going to be nailed to a Roman cross, and all they can talk about is which one of us is going to be greatest. My wife had to rush me to the hospital emergency some time ago, and about in the middle of the night. Now, this didn't really happen, you understand. I'm just using this for an illustration. But let's suppose, of course, they didn't know what I was wrong with me. I thought I was dying. They thought I was dying. I felt like I was. And, and uh, well, what if they'd gotten my two kids out there and load me in the car, and there I am laying in the back seat, writhing in pain, knowing that every breath's going to be my last. And I wonder why the car's not moving. Why aren't we going? And I listen, and you know what? The reason we're not moving is my kids are arguing over who gets to ride in the front seat. <laughs> hey, you rode in the front seat. Mama, it's my time to ride in the front seat. 
if you have any kids at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Why, well, I man, here I am. I mean, their loving father laying in the back seat. He may be dying. And the main thing that's on their mind is who gets to ride up front. That's exactly the way these disciples were doing. Their Lord was heavy-hearted and burdened because he had upon him world redemption and all they could think about, which one of us is the greatest. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he stood him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name is receiving me. And whoever receives me is not receiving me, but him who sent me. And then look at verse 38. I cannot believe it. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. The irony of that. They weren't able to cast out demons. They had lost their power to cast out demons, and they saw somebody else casting it out, and they said, hey, you stop because you're not one of us. See, they, they weren't concerned about people getting delivered. They were concerned about who did the delivering. You see, they were more concerned about their position. Why, uh, casting out demons, that's a prerogative of the Lord's disciples. I mean, after all, we've left everything. We're on the ground floor in the new kingdom of God. We're special. Why, if you let ever Tom, Dick, and Harry out here cast out demons, after all, it won't be special. Do you know what you have to do to, to have rich people? You've got to have poor people. I mean, friend, there's no value in being rich if everybody's rich. I mean, you, you can't be rich unless there's some poor folks. And what these disciples are saying, listen, it, it, we can't be special in our position and privilege if everybody can do it. You know what they were interested in? They were not interested in the Lord's passion. They were not interested in his cross. They were interested in their position. I mean, after all, we signed up for what we could get out of this. The song does say, doesn't it, it pays to serve Jesus. Now, here's what happened. Suddenly, Jesus changes his tune. And he says, men, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And we are not able to comprehend what that must have meant to them. All of a sudden, their plans, their dreams, their hopes, their ambitions are dashed to the ground. This isn't what they, this isn't what they left everything for. They didn't leave everything for this. And suddenly, they begin to fall just a little bit further behind. They weren't quite as close to him. They begin to drop back a little bit. Now they aren't as committed to him, you see. Because, brother, if you get close to Jesus, you're liable to get hit by the same cross he's hit with. If lightning's going to strike him, you'd better back off a little bit or it'll hit you too. And if following Jesus, if Jesus means what he's saying, that we're going to have to deny ourselves and take up a cross... And you see, for us, we cross is something we wear around the neck. Our cross, we in, interpret that as service, doing something for Jesus. No, folks, a cross isn't for caring. It's for being crucified upon. To them, cross meant they had to die. So they begin to back off a little bit. And they lessen their commitment. And Jesus said, it's because of your unbelief. The disciples' problem was just one thing. They didn't want to have anything to do with the cross. 
And I'll tell you something, folks, that's our problem. I'm afraid that the kind of Christianity most of us have been introduced to and led into has been perhaps distorted by we preachers who are more anxious maybe to get converts than to get disciples. And we have a picture today of God as sort of a heavenly butler who waits on us as a Jesus as a some kind glorified genie, and all we have to do is to rub a lamp, push the right button, and he's there to satisfy every whim and meet every need. He reminds me of the way some of us talk about him. He reminds me of these candy machines, you know, that you just punch a button and give you whatever little sweet you want. And as long as Jesus Christ will make us popular, and uh, as long as he'll make us a millionaire, and as long as he'll make us a great athlete or a successful businessman, man, it's popular to be a Christian. But I want to tell you something. The New Testament never, never, never uses that as the motivation. Never does. He said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to say no to self and die to yourself and die to your own ambitions, your own plans and your own wishes. It's going to cost you something. You're going to have to be willing to sacrifice in order that I might be absolute Lord. And I just have news for you, folks. We're not all that interested in that. I get a lot of church papers, and I, I enjoy reading pastor's columns, you know, from pastor to people or from parson to parson, you know, parson. I, I enjoy reading these pastor's columns. I've always been a science fiction fan. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember a few years ago <clears throat> reading pastor's column, and evidently it had come a real rain the Sunday before. For in this article, the pastor said, I want to thank all the people who braved the rain to come to church last Sunday. And those words leaped out at me. Brave the rain to come to church last Sunday. I thought to myself, boy, that'd look good in the book of Acts. They braved the rain. I mean, some folks were sawn asunder. Some were burned with fire. Some were pulled apart by wild beasts. But these brave people, they braved the rain. And I can imagine exactly how it happened. That little, dear little family went to bed on Saturday night, unsuspecting the great tragedy that was to befall the next day. And suddenly, as the next morning dawns, mother and dad are awakened as the kids come running in, shaking them, terrified, said, Mommy, Daddy, it's raining. And they're almost afraid to look out the window to see if it's really so. And they look out there, and their hearts faint because, sure enough, it's raining. And so they assemble that family together. What are we going to do? Should we go to church? I mean, after all, you, you don't go to school on Monday if it's raining. And, and you don't go to your work, you know, if it's raining. Should we go to church? And that brave little family will go... And so you can see them as they count not their lives dear unto themselves, and they run from the house to the garage. <laughs> and they get in their automobile fearlessly, courageously. They hazard their lives for the sake of the gospel and drive three blocks to church. 
And once again, taking their lives in their very hands, these would-be martyrs run from the church, run from the cart of the church, and the pastor gets up and says, I want to thank all of you who braved the rain. Now, we laugh at that, but I want to tell you something, folks. That is about the extent of our sacrifice for Jesus. Now, folks, we think we've done something mighty good when we come to church in the rain. I don't know if they still do it or not, but when I was a pastor on that big red book where it keeps the whole Sunday school record, I mean, for the whole church, they may not have it now, but up there used to have a weather report. So, you see, if you had a low day, you could always explain it by, well, it rained that day. Jesus said you're going to have to deny self, say no to self. It's interesting, he didn't say you're going to have to deny sin or the world. I think it's easier to deny sin in the world than it is to self. You see, self only wants one thing, its own way. And if I'm going to be alive to Jesus, I must be willing to say with the hymn writer, Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition. All I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. You know, I, uh, you know the reason we won't go per person and apologize for what we've done is we want to save face. Self. The reason we don't give and tithe as we ought. Self. I might have to deprive myself of some luxury. The reason we find it difficult to witness to our friends at work is we're afraid they'll think we're nuts or fanatics or something. See, saving faith, self. Talk about these personality conflicts in marriage. Eh, there are no personality conflicts. It's my old self-life irritating your self-life. Now, one thing we'll not give up. If our religion, if our relationship to Jesus begins to cost us something, friend, that's too much. We'll serve God as long as it's convenient. But you cannot seek the Lord's face and save your own. I used to hear about these Christians in other parts of the world that are being persecuted, and they still are tonight, dear friend. I could name you some places where for you to be found assembling like this in worship, you'd lose your job and lose your food stamps and everything else. And you know, I used to think, well, bless God, the Lord has just so highly favored us because uh, we don't have anything like that. We've never known real persecution. Must mean that God favors us. And then I read a little verse over there in the book of Acts that sort of upset me. It was after the first persecution those disciples had endured, and the Bible says they, when they were let go, they went on their way rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And I got to wondering, maybe the reason God has exempted us from suffering is not because of his favor, but maybe he realizes we're not worthy. Folks, I want to tell you something. I don't know if we're made of the stuff or not that can take any kind of sacrifice. We've become so comfortable and easy and convenient. And we've gotten to the place where we feel that God 
owes us this. But Jesus said, if any man wants to come after me, he's got to say no to self. I like that translation of it. Say no to self because myself's always talking to me. Does yourself ever make any suggestions to you? When somebody wrongs you, does yourself ever say, don't let them get by with that? Does yourself ever say to you, insist on your rights? Make sure you get what's coming to you. Don't let anybody run over you. Jesus said, you've got to say no to self. Take up your cross. Say no to self. Put self on the cross. Die to your own ambitions, your own will, your own rights, your own privileges. And you say yes to Christ. Whatever he says, whatever he wants. Say yes to him. No to self and yes to Christ. And I'm wondering tonight if we're willing to take up that cross. I'm wondering if the reason you haven't done something that you know God wants you to do is because you're not willing to say no to self. To do that would involve saying no to self. I'm wondering if the reason you've not made a commitment and you've not enacted that part of obedience that God's been dealing with you about tonight is because before you can do that, you've got to say no to self. Jesus said the reason you've lost your power to live is you ought to live because your unbelief, your commitment to me and to my cross has diminished and with it has diminished your ability to live.